Well, we've been in a series on prayer for the last five weeks. So this is the final week of this six-week series, and the title has been Learning to Pray. It's based upon a book written by D.A. Carson, Praying with Paul. And in this book, Carson looks at the prayers of Paul and says, what if we learn to pray by looking at the prayers of Scripture? And of course, in this book, he's primarily looking at, at Paul's prayers. And our goal has been that, that our prayers would be shaped and informed by Scripture. And so we've given away one of these books every single week. And so I'll set it again up here. Uh, and so um, after service, feel free to come up. You can look at it. You can take it, uh, read it, pass it on. Um, it's just a helpful book, another tool and just the learning on how to pray. Um, one thing that we have said every single week that I've preached in this series is that Paul prays for deep realities, not pleasant results. You've heard that at least 20 times. So you should know that. Paul does not pray for our immediate happiness, but he prays for eternal joy. He doesn't pray for good food, good time, and a good day, you know, like the typical mealtime prayer but he prays for deep realities. He prays for things like the glory of God, that we would know God, that we would love God, that we would abound in love for one another, that we would have wisdom, and that we would persevere in our faith. And so today we're going to look at one more of these deep realities that he prays for, and he's going to pray that we would mature in our faith, that we would become more like Christ. And so I, I want to begin by just asking, if someone was to come to you today and say, how do you mature in your faith, what would you say? What is one thing that you can do today and really every day that is guaranteed to grow you in your faith? How would you answer that question? How do you mature? And so that's what we're going to see today. Paul's main point is that you mature in your faith as you pray to grasp the unfathomable, unfathomable love of Christ. That's what we're going to see. He prays that we would know this love of Christ, this unfathomable love of Christ. And so what I want to do is I want to encourage you to stand, and we're going to read the prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Now, we covered the first half of it last week. We'll cover the second half this week, but we'll start in verse 14. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, Father I pray, grow us in our faith today. God, help us to know the love of Christ. May we grow into the fullness of God this morning according to your power, your immeasurably great power that has worked within us. And Lord, we pray that you would do this great work 
that we would mature in our faith, we'd become more like Christ, all for your glory. For your glory today, for your glory tomorrow, and for your glory for all of eternity and to all generations from this day forth forevermore. God, you are worthy of our glory. You are supreme. You are perfect. You are life. You are eternal joy. And you have saved us by your grace. So God, may we know this love, the love that you have for us, the love that comes to us in Jesus Christ. May we grasp it. May we hold on to it and count it as supremely valuable. And may we proclaim it with all of our heart in this world. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all, you all may be seated. Uh, so what I want to do is I, I want to begin, and I just want, I just want to summarize Paul's prayer. And we can do that, really, if we just look at verses 19 and 21. This is the essence of Paul's prayer. He basically prays, I pray to the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that you'd be filled with the fullness of God to the glory of God. That's what he wants. Filled to the fullness of God to the glory of God. Now, to be filled with the fullness of God is really another way of saying, I want you to be mature in Christ. We know this because if, if we were to go over into chapter 4, right after this prayer, in verse 13, Paul uses very similar language when he's talking about the church, and he wants the church to mature in the fullness of Christ. So the goal of the church is that we grow into the mature, into the fullness of Christ, that we'd build each other up in love, and the prayer right before that is we'd grow into the fullness of God. Both are just two different ways of talking about being mature in God, or growing in our faith, or becoming more like Christ. So why doesn't Paul just say that? Like every thought, he takes eight verses to say, hey, I want you to become more like Jesus to the glory of God. Wouldn't that be simple? Like, we could all memorize that so easily if that was the prayer. But he doesn't. So why does he take eight verses to say, grow in Christ for the glory of God? Well, maybe a helpful illustration. So right now, Ben and I, my son, we're in the process of looking for a car. And so we are we're narrowing down the possibilities we're narrowing down the price range, and, and we're driving all over the place looking at vehicles. That's what we did today, yesterday, so we'll do tomorrow, and the goal is, hopefully, or today, and hopefully tomorrow we'll be done, right? That's the goal. We'll see. But at some point in the near future, there will be another vehicle in my driveway, and I will turn to my son, and I will say, you need to take care of this vehicle so it runs well, right? Great, perfect, clear instruction. Take care of the vehicle, runs well. I've told him everything he needs to know. Right? Figure it out. <laughs> or I could say it like this. Hey, Ben, you need to make sure you care for this car. That means that you're going to change the oil every 3,000 miles. That means you're going to rotate the, the tires. That means you're going to check the, the inflation in the tires. That means you're going to check the fluids. You're going to keep an eye on the brakes. You're going to fill it with gas. You're going to change the air filter. And if you do these things, it will run well. That's just another way of saying what I said in the beginning, but I unpacked it a little bit more so now Ben knows exactly what I mean when I say take care of the car so it runs well. 
That's what Paul's doing for us here. He takes eight verses because he wants you and I to know, what does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? What does it mean to be mature in Christ? What does that mean to be more like Christ? So he wants us to know what we're truly asking God to do in our heart and in our life. So tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up and, and, and you're going to spend time reading God's word and hopefully before, during, and after. You're, you're praying and one of your prayers might be, God, help me to grow in my faith today. That's a great prayer. That's a fine prayer. But I encourage you, think like Paul. What does that mean? God, help me to grow in my faith today. What exactly are you asking God to do? Do you, do you know? Do you know what it will take for you to mature in your faith? This is Paul's prayer. So that when we say, God, I want to grow, what are you asking him to do? What are you relying upon at that moment? What grace and what strength are you asking God to do in your life so that you become more and more like Christ? And so that's what we're going to look at. And to begin, we're just going to see it's all about love. That's really what this, this whole prayer is about. It's about love. Now, last week, we preached on verses 14 to 17. In those verses, Paul prayed that Jesus would dwell more and more in our heart uh, by the power of the Spirit. And we used an illustration last week. And we said, imagine a young couple, and, and they buy their first home. Remember that if you were here? And, and, and their first home has uh, shag carpet everywhere, you know, orange and green. It's got flowery wallpaper on all the walls. It's just exactly what you would put up. It's got weed-infesting gardens, broken fence panels. And so slowly and slowly, they begin to renovate the house, replacing the carpet, replacing the wallpaper, you know, stripping the wallpaper and putting up paint. Like, there's no replacing wallpaper. Um, you know, cleaning up the gardens. There's, uh, you know, the fence panel, just everything. And so in 20 years, they're looking at this house, and they go, I love this house. This is, our, this is where we live, and we love where we live. It looks like us, and this is what Paul is praying. I want, I want Christ to renovate your heart by the power of the Spirit. I want him to go through the rooms of your heart, the closets, the, the, the living room, the family room, the kitchen of your heart. I want him to clean it out so that he would live more and more within you. And that's, that's where we stopped last week. And now we look at the second part of verse 17. And he says, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So what happens when Christ makes himself more at home in your heart? What happens when he cleans out the rooms and, and removes the trash, removes the immorality and those things, and he slowly just makes you more and more like Christ? What happens when that happens, when, when Christ does that? We're told that we grow in our understanding of Christ. And Paul uses both agricultural and architectural language at this moment. So he says, to become more like Christ means the roots of your faith will grow deeper and deeper into the soil of his love. So imagine like a giant oak tree. Have you ever seen those oak trees that have been around for 50, 80, 90 years? They're huge, they're gigantic, and their root system is massive that goes down. He says, pray that you're like that, that your roots have gone deep into the soil of God's love so that when the temptations of this world come, you will stand firm. 
Or he says it this way. When we become more like Christ, pray that our faith will have more and more concrete added to it so that we'd be anchored and grounded in the love of Christ. So if you think of like a giant skyscraper that goes far up into the sky, it has millions and millions of tons of concrete holding it, grounding it, anchoring it into the ground. So no matter the storm, no matter the wind, it will be firm. That's what Paul's praying. The more we are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, the less we'll be tempted by the things of this world. A mature faith is one that grasps the love of Christ. And we see especially, like verse 19, Paul says, I want you to know the love of Christ. In fact, if you you look through Scripture, all of Scripture talks about that God's people are to be known for their love. Remember in John 13, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And, and after that, verses 33, 34, remember what he says? By this, by your love for one another, it will be known that you are my disciples. The whole law can be summarized in that we love God and that we love one another. All of Scripture talks about as God's people, we are to love others. But Paul is not praying that, firstly. He's not praying that we love others. Not here. We looked at other prayers that Paul does pray that we love for one another. He's not praying for that here. What does he pray for? That we would grasp the love of Christ. He wants us first and foremost to know God's love for us in Christ Jesus. I mean, think about it. If you're going to share the gospel with an unbeliever, do you start with, and this is what it looks like to be a believer, and you're going to love all these people? Where do you start with? The love of Christ. You tell them who God is and what he has done for you in Christ Jesus, that you would know him, that you would love him, and then you would live for him. Same thing as a believer. The first thing we must do in every day, remind ourselves of the love of Christ that he has for us, because only when we know the love of Christ, do we then truly love others? And now just think about how practical this is. Think about it in terms like this. Why do you sin? Why does anyone sin? Have you ever thought about that? Why did Eve take the apple or whatever fruit it is? Like, why did she take it? It's because she wanted it. It's because it promised pleasure. It promised happiness. It was a delight to her eyes. It promised pleasure, so she went after it. I can be like, God, I will do it. Every time you sin, it's because it promises pleasure, and you want what it promises. The reason we click on immoral websites is because it promises pleasure. The reason we lie is to escape getting in trouble or to make a better impression on other people. The reason we get angry with people who don't meet our expectations is we want them to know they were wrong and we were right. And they should conform to that at all times, right? At least that's what we think. So how do we overcome sin? How do we overcome this sin that promises us pleasure at every moment of every day? We fight it with a greater pleasure, a greater joy, a greater love. The more we delight ourselves in the love of Christ, the more futile and the more ugly the temptations of the world become. In fact, this is what uh, the Puritan Richard Baxter said. 
He said, may the living God, who is the portion and rest of the saints, make these, our carnal minds, so spiritual and our earthly hearts so heavenly that loving him and delighting him may be the work of our lives. In other words, grow us in the love of Christ so that's all that we want. Or Matthew Henry, he said this, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures which with, which, with which the tempter bait, baits his hooks. You hear that? The more we know the joy of the Lord, the love of Christ, the temptations, the hooks of this world are no longer a temptation for us. They lose their appeal. Do you see why we should make this our prayer? Like, make this, God, help me today to grasp the unfathomable love of Christ. Pray that God, Christ, would dwell more and more in your heart so you'd be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ so the temptations would no longer look beautiful, they, but they would appear for what they truly are, rotten, worm-infested, maggot-filled fruit. Because that's what they are. And the more we understand the love of Christ, the more we see the temptations of the world for what they are. So Paul's prayer, be consumed with the love of Christ. Be overwhelmed with the love of Christ. Grasp the unfathomable love of Christ. And so in Paul's prayer, there's three things that we learn that we need to know for to grasp the love of Christ. And so I just want to walk through these. And before, let me just say, um, the reason I use the word grasp is because the word comprehend in verse 18. Comprehend means to lay hold of, to seize, to, to catch, or, or to grasp. Paul is not calling for you and me to be like scholars, getting be armchair theologians, get in our chairs, study scripture, become really, really intellectual, and just have this intellectual knowledge of Christ. But rather, think of a man drowning, and you throw him a life preserver. What does he do? He grasps the life preserver. He catches it. He seizes it. There's nothing more precious at that moment than this life preserver. That's Paul's prayer. That's how we're to think of the love of Christ. We cling to it. We hold on to it. We grasp it because it's precious. It's life-giving. And there's nothing more valuable than the love of Christ. So real quick, if you're wondering, why do you use the word grasp? That's the word grass. I'm clinging to it with everything that I have because it's the most important, most precious thing that we can know. So three things we need to know if we're to grasp the love of Christ. Number one, we grasp the love of Christ by faith in Jesus through the power of the Spirit. So last week, if you were here, we said every spiritual blessing comes to us by the Father, uh, by faith in Jesus through the power of the Spirit. Do you remember that? We talked through. This is how our prayers work. Paul here in Ephesians 3 has a Trinitarian shape to his prayer. Ephesians 1 does also. And Paul says you pray to the Father on the basis of all that Christ has done for you through the Spirit, that the Spirit would work in you, bringing about all the blessings and provisions that God has promised. In fact, look at verse 16. How is it that Christ will dwell in your hearts? We pray to the Father, Christ dwell in my heart. How? Verse 16, through the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 18. How will you and I grasp the love of Christ? 
We need strength through the power of the Spirit. Listen, we don't become Christians by our strength, and we don't grow as Christians by our strength. It's all by grace. It's all by his love. It's all by the strength of the Spirit that he works in us. If we're going to mature in our faith and be more like Jesus, we need the very power of God working in us. Now, many Christians, and maybe this is you, you've wondered, why am I not growing in my faith right now? Have you ever asked that question? I seem to have plateaued. Maybe that's you here today, and you're like, man, I'm just, I'm not moving, I don't feel like. Maybe you've gotten comfortable, for whatever reason, you just feel as though you're not moving. Why are you not growing in your faith? Why do we, or, or maybe it's a certain sin, why do I continue just to wrestle with this sin? Why am I not seeming to make any progress at all? One reason, one reason, might be others, is that you have an, ag- an exaggerated view of your own strength. I mean, just think about that. You're operating on your strength, on your wisdom, and on your abilities, and you think you're strong. And, and to give you the benefit of the doubt, that's not the right word, uh, the world says um, you are enough. You be you. That is the message that you're hearing through social media, through the TV, through a multitude of sources at all times. So it's not an excuse, but that's, that's why, that's one reason we do struggle with this. We're continually being told, you are enough. You can do whatever it is that you want, which is why when, when high school students or, or junior high students or even elementary students, they're told, you can do whatever you want. You can be a doctor, you can be an astronaut, you can do whatever you Nobody talks about being just a trash man. Nobody talks about just being a normal business guy. They are told you can do whatever it is that you want because there's no boundaries to what you can do because you be you. You are enough. And while there's certain good aspects of the fact that we can do many things, the focus is and what it teaches is you are strong enough, you are wise enough, you are able to rely upon yourself to accomplish the very things that you want. But when we come through the Bible, and especially looking at the story of Israel, what do we learn? We're not enough. We're not strong enough. We continually see Israel rely upon their strength, and what happens? They go back into slavery. They're defeated by other enemies. They constantly are having to have God come and give grace and save them. So the message of God's word is not you are enough, you do you. It's rely upon God because he's a gracious, good father who has saved you and promises every time you come to me, I will give you grace. Every time you pray for strength, I will give you strength. Every time you pray that you would grasp the unfathomable, unfathomable love of Christ, he will strengthen you that you would do so. The entire Christian life is about being dependent upon his grace. Listen, if you are not praying, so just, just examine your own life right now. If you are not praying, or your prayers are primarily centered around the dinner table, focused on the blessing of the food, and that's the extent, then you have an exaggerated view of your own strength. Just, just know that. You're operating as if you are strong enough. Now, you would say, if I asked you or anyone, are you strong enough, or do you need, or do you need God's grace? Oh, no, of course I need God's grace. Great. How do you do that? Well, I don't know. I go through my day doing everything I want, but I do pray that my food would be blessed. <laughs> I mean, like, 
That's so often what we do. And I, and I would say, many times we go, I don't know what to pray for. Let's learn from Scripture. What would I pray for? Hey, today, let's pray that I would know the love of Christ. Let that be your prayer. When you go home today, you're sitting with your family, with your wife, whoever, pray. Help us to know the love of Christ more and more. Jesus, renovate my heart. Renovate my children's hearts. Renovate my wife. Renovate my husband. Renovate the church's heart that we'd be rooted and grounded in your love. That's, that's the first thing. We need to know this is not a work of our own, of our own strength, but this is by the very grace of Christ. Um, number two, we grasp the love of Christ for all of eternity. Look at verse 18. Paul wants you and I to begin thinking about the sheer magnitude of Christ's love. He says, he says, I want you to have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So one reason we need to know strength is why. How big is the love of Christ? It's really, really big. And he wants you to know the breadth, the length, the width, the height. I mean, so, so think about it. He gives us these measuring terms. They're supposed to just kind of blow our minds at this moment. When you're going, okay, I need to know the height. How high does Christ's love go? It goes past the stars. How wide does it go from galaxy or it goes from one end of the universe to the other end? How deep does it go? Deeper than the depths of the recesses of the sea. He wants us to know the love of Christ. And he says, to even understand the love of Christ, you need to know, you need to have the strength of God because it's so big, so expansive. And then he says in verse 19, and I want you to know that which surpasses knowledge. You catch like the funny part of that? I want you to know that which you can't know. Thanks, Paul. Crystal clear at this moment. I got it. But the point isn't that we can't know anything. The point is that we can't know it fully. And we'll look at that more at the next point. And this should delight you. And let me give you just three reasons why this is an awesome truth, that we need the strength of, of the Spirit to work in us, that we need to know that which we can never fully know. Because number one, God is love. So what, what's the prayer? Know the love of Christ. So know the love of God. And God is love. That's what we read in 1 John 4, 8. You see, God is not just loving. He is love. The reason why he does acts of love is because he is love, which means everything he does, his words, his actions, are all love. So when Paul says, I want you to comprehend, I want you to grasp, I want you to know the love of Christ, what's he calling us to do? I want you to know God. Because he is love. And because God is infinite, he has no beginning, no end. He has eternally existed, and his love is infinite. So all of his attributes are infinite. His love stretches high, low, deep, wide. He's infinitely great, so this means he will forever, forever satisfy you. Think about it. No one after a billion years in heaven, is going to say, I'm bored. Is this all there is? Because the love of Christ is infinite. Right now we're called, know this love of Christ, which goes beyond knowledge, and then you're going to spend a billion, million, trillion years with God, and guess what? 
You'll never exhaust his love. He will forever satisfy you, which is why every day you wake up, I don't even think there's days in heaven. There's no sun. Christ is, God is the sun. So what does that even look like? No one knows. But for all of eternity, you'll be su supremely delighting in the very love of God. Think of it like this. Do, do I have any hikers in here? I know, I know. We got a couple. People just love hiking mountains. Now, I remember when I was young, like 15, 16, we climbed Mount Shasta, and I went with my youth leader and some of their students, and so uh, we're climbing the mountain, and it's awesome. It's full of snow. We got crampons and everything, and we get to the peak, and we, we realize that, and, or at that moment, we look out, and there's this amazing view of the entire valley, and it is just awesome, but we're not actually at the peak because there's another peak. You ever get to that? You ever do that? We're like, oh, we're at the top. Oh. Man, it goes on. So then we, we hike up to the next peak. And we go, oh, this view's even better. But there's more. You ever done that? And you're like, it just keeps going? Now imagine, this is heaven. And every day we reach a new peak. And we go, oh, this is amazing. The glory, the beauty that we see is incredible. But there's another peak. And we go to the next day even more, and we, we see it even more fully and more beautifully. And then there's another peak, and another peak, and another peak, and we're never tired because as we see each of these peaks and the glory that we're seeing at each and every one of them, we want more, we hunger more, we thirst more for this beauty, for this glory, for this knowledge. So we're continually running up the mountain that we would see more and more beauty and glory and understand the love of Christ. That's what it'll be for all of eternity. We'll never get to the top of the mountain and say, I see it all. Done that. Check. Where's the next mountain? Never. But forever, infinitely satisfied in his love for all times. You'll never exhaust the glory and love. Isn't that good news? You'll never exhaust his glory and his love. Number three, we grasp the love of Christ even if it's not fully possible. Now, I purposely have not used the word incomprehensible today because you could say, let us, let us grasp the incomprehensible love of Christ. But what does incomprehensible mean? It means impossible to understand or unintelligible. That's not what Scripture is. That's not what the love of Christ is. We can know it. Paul tells us, know the love of Christ. He's not telling us to know something we cannot know. He's not saying, know the love of Christ, but I mean, it's... God's too big. You just can't understand him. Good luck. And we actually can know. We'll just never know him fully. And the fact that Paul prays we, need, we would know the love of Christ means that you and I have room to grow in our knowledge of the gospel. Did you know that? Every time you come on a Sunday morning, we listen to his word. Every time you wake up and you read God's word in the morning, every time you take just a good Christian book and you're reading and understanding more things, you're growing in your love for Christ. There's always room to grow. That should delight you and spur you on, not discourage you. There's more. There's more beauty. There's more glory. There's more joy. There's more goodness to know. His gifts are, are infinite. His riches are are glorious, and he wants us to know them and to see them. And so he calls us to know the love of Christ. And throughout chapters 1 and 2, he's written 
about the gospel, which is the love of Christ. In fact, in 1 John 4, 8, 9, and 10, he says, God is love, and the way that he has demonstrated his love is the sending of his son, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which in chapters 1 and 2 is what Paul expounds on. He wants you and I to know in chapter 2 that we're born sinful, that we do not love God, that we're actually called children of wrath, that we rebel against God, that we hate God. We have zero desire in our sinful nature that you and I and every person apart from Christ is born with. We do not want God. Because of that, it says in Ephesians 2, 3, we are children of wrath, which means we deserve God's wrath. And the reason hell is infinite is because we have offended an infinitely great God. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves, to pardon ourselves, to earn merit that we would move ourselves out of this wrathful position. But then, then Paul says in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy. Why? Why is he rich in mercy? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. The love of Christ is why you and I have been saved. It's because of his great love, he has mercy. Because of his great love, he has grace. And because of his great love, we have been made alive together with Christ. Why were you saved? Why is anyone saved? It has nothing to do with your abilities, with your wisdom, with your powers. It has all to do with God's grace because of his love. And you were saved, forgiven of your sins, adopted into his family, chosen by him through his love, and your salvation is guaranteed by his spirit, all by love. All by the very love of God. You might ask, but how did this come about? How do I go from sinner, from rebel, from spiritually dead to alive in Christ? Chapter 1, verse 7, he says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. It's all love. That's the reason. We go, why does God love me? Because he's loving. Why did God save me? Because he's love. Why will he strengthen me? Because he's loving. It all comes back to his love. Why does he save us, strengthen us, sustain us, and keep us to the end? Because of his love. That's what Paul wants you and I to grasp. And so parents, especially, I just want to encourage you, when you're with your kids, pray they know the love of Christ. This isn't something you just impart by giving them a really good gospel presentation. Maybe if I just say it better, then they'll believe. Or if you're trying to share the gospel with one of your friends, pray that they know the love of Christ. Pray that Christ would work in their hearts and soften them, that they would hear and that the love of Christ would save them. This isn't something that you can just articulate well enough. It's all by the grace and love of God. So if you're sitting here and going, The problem with my prayer life is I don't know what to pray. Start here. God, help me just to know your love. May I grasp it. May I seize it. May I want it more and more. If you feel like you're on a spiritual plateau at this moment, if you feel like there's spiritual apathy in your life, if there's a sin and you're like, I don't know if there's any hope overcoming this, pray that you would know the love of Christ, that he would strengthen you by his power, that you would desire him more than that sin. Do you remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart for what? 
they will see God. Blessed are, blessed are those who love Christ more than the things of this world. They're guaranteed to see God. That's your prayer. That's Paul's prayer. I want to know his love. I want to see his prayer or his love. I want to grasp it. Husbands, do that with your wives. Wives, do that with your husbands. Do that for the church. Do that with your families. And we pray that we know and treasure the love of Christ. So I want to I close now by just looking at the doxology. The doxology is just the praise that Paul gives in verses 20 and 21. And, and the reason, I mean, there's just so many things that we could say about this fact. I was like, should we just do a whole separate sermon on the doxology, which would have been amazing, and maybe we'll do that at some point in the future. But this doxology gives us also confidence when we pray. And, and, and I want you to see this confidence that you and I have. What we're told is that God is immeasurably great. So what's your expectation that God will do in your heart? God, I want you to renovate my heart because right now it's this sin or it's this thing that I'm thinking of that I need help in, right? That's, that's what we could think of, right? He will do far more abundantly than what you ask or think. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or all that we think. So when you pray, God, renovate my heart, he'll do far more than you expect. You say, God, help me to know the love of Christ. He's going to give you far more knowledge of his love than you ever expect. Isn't that good? God, help me to abound in my love for one another. He'll give you far more than you ever expect. God, grow me in my wisdom. Grow me in my knowledge. Help me to be a better father. Help me to be a better wife. Help me to obey my parents. Whatever it is, he will give you far more than all that you ask or think. Why? Because of his immeasurably great power. It says, according to the power at work within you. Isn't that incredible? So when you're sitting there thinking, man, if I could just grow a little bit more, God's saying, oh, I'm going to grow you a lot more. Whatever your expectation is, whatever your thought process, God has something far more glorious in mind. So he's saying, I just want you to pray. And when you pray, no, I will do far more than what you're asking or thinking. That's an invitation to prayer right there. Number two, because God is infinitely glorious. Paul says in verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. For one, God's not only glorious today or glorious tomorrow, he's glorious for all of eternity. There's no one more supreme. So yeah, as Jake is up here doing the Apostles' Creed and he's talking about there's all these guys and they're all running together, which is great, having fun, and they share their faith and they say, so, so we're all good, right? The Hindu faith, the Muslim faith, the Christian faith, the Mormon faith, we're all, we're all moving towards God, right? No, because there's one God who's glorious and the other ones are not. And this God is supremely glorious. All generations. And he's praying that, that God will be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. Which if the church is glorifying God, it's only because of Christ Jesus. So I think these are just two ways of saying it. For, God, for Christ to glorify God is for him to be glorified in the church. For the church to glorify the Father is all through Christ. And so I, I would encourage you, when you're praying, 
if you don't know how your prayer can glorify God, then that's how you know what to pray for and what not to pray for. Well, just glorify God. Does this glorify God through the, through the church and in Christ Jesus? Does it show his glory, his goodness, his greatness, his love, his mercy? Last one, he's inexhaustibly generous. The whole passage is built upon his love. The whole passage is built upon God will give you grace. God will fill you with love. The whole scripture is built upon God is generous. When you come to him, what does he do? He gives as a good father. And then it ends with the word amen. Do you know why we end our prayers with amen? Do you just say amen? You're like, I don't know, it says it in scripture, so I say it. Or, or the pastor says amen, so we say amen. Have you ever thought, what does amen mean? So be it. So what does it mean? So be it. So as you're praying, God, fill me with your glory Fill me with the very fullness of God, so be it. God, let it be done for your glory through church, through the, uh, for your glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. You're banking on his promises at this moment. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. So what's the amen? Not just so be it, like do it, God. Like I said, amen. Like I, I, I entered in the right code. So now you have to do what I said. But notice what Paul says. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him we utter our amen. Because all of God's promises are yes in Christ. That's why we say amen to God for his glory. John Piper says this in his book, Future Grace. When we say amen, we're saying, yes, Lord, you can do it. It means, yes, Lord, you are powerful. Yes, Lord, you are wise. Yes, Lord, you are merciful. Yes, Lord, all future grace comes from you and has been confirmed in Christ. Amen is the exclamation point of hope after a prayer for help. So when you're saying amen, you're banking on everything that God is in Christ Jesus for you. So when you say amen, you're trusting in the measurably great power of God. When you say amen, you are proclaiming God's worth and asking that he be glorified. When you say amen, you are testifying that God is inexhaustibly generous. He will continually give you grace and fill you with the knowledge of his love. So may all of our prayers be amen. Because we're trusting in Christ Jesus at that moment for everything that he has done for us. So I encourage you, wherever you're at in your faith, whether you feel like you've plateaued, whether you're, you're not yet have faith in Christ, you haven't yet believed in him, or you're a believer and you're growing and it's just awesome right now, pray that you would know the love of Christ. That the love of Christ would pull you out of that plateau. The love of Christ would continue growing you in your faith. And if you're an unbeliever and you're sitting here going, okay, I've heard this, I've, I've heard about the gospel, Pray that you would know this love of Christ. Pray that God would give you a knowledge of him through Jesus and that you would believe in him, that you would love him, and that you would live for him. So we're gonna pray now and then we're gonna go into communion. Father, Father, may we know the love of Christ. May we grasp it. May we seize it. May we lay hold of it. May we count it precious. May we count it beautiful. 
May we treasure it above everything else in this world. And Lord, I pray that we would hunger for your love so that the temptations of this world, the sins of this world, the traps, the deceits of Satan would be seen for what they truly are, that they are not life-giving, they are not glorious, but rather they, they seek to steal our life and to kill us and destroy us. So God, may we be satisfied only in the love of Christ. May the parents here help their children to know the love of Christ. May husbands and wives here help their spouses to know the love of Christ. May every church member here pray for one another that together we would know the love of Christ. And may we never cease to, know, to pray this prayer. That you would renovate the, the rooms in our hearts. That we'd be more and more spiritually rooted and grounded in your love. And may it all be done for your glory that our lives would be a living testimony of your grace and of your love. And Father, as we now partake of communion, may we be reminded that this is a picture of your love for us, that the only reason we are saved is because your son Jesus came to earth, died on a cross, rose again three days later, that through his death and resurrection, we'd be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. In your name, Jesus, amen.